film sucks Indie film sucks It's the Indie Film Sucks Podcast Yeah Streets of St. Louis, from a basement on South Broadway, the Indie Film Sucks Podcast. Because Indie Film still sucks. Indie Film Sucks. <laughs> and tonight we have with us a guest director, Wyatt Weed. Welcome, Welcome to the show. Wyatt. Thank you, guys. Nice so, to see you again, buddy. Yeah, it's good been, to be here. It's been a minute, but I'm glad to see you, buddy. Yeah, well, we, we go back a ways, don't we? A long we? ways. Yeah. Let's get into that. It's getting longer and longer. Now, wait, yeah. before we get into that, though, we got to ask Wyatt the yeah, famous question. Do, right? Wyatt, what's your suck? What's my suck? Oh, my God. When friends, family, acquaintances say, I want to see your film. I, I, I want to see your film. And then you say... Well, it got accepted to the Filmmaker Showcase last summer, and it played there. <laughs> and then it got invited to the St. Louis International Film Festival, and it played there. And then it got invited to two local science fiction conventions, and it played there. And then it was invited to screen at the Science Center downtown. And then we did a screening at a local comic book store with all the cast and crew. So I don't know where you've been for the last nine months, but I let you know about every single one of those things. So... When you say, you know, I want to see your film, I'm like, well, screw you. Buy the DVD then. Because, <laughs> you know, how many chances do you need to come out and see your buddy's independent film, you know? So, anyway, that's, you know, get off your ass and get out of your house and go and see your friend's movie. That's, Ditto for us. No, that, that, no that, is, that is perfect. And you don't know how many times it's actually going to be out there. So, you independent film people, when somebody says my film is showing here and it's an independent film, go see it. One film played for a week at Ronnie's yep. 20 and the other film played for two weeks at the Tivoli. Right. If you can't see the film when it plays at a local movie theater, then I just, then, you know. I don't know what to say. I've seen all your shit. Thank you, man. You're welcome. What what they mean by that is when can I get a free copy that I can watch at home at my leisure. At my convenience. Exactly. And, and, And when you give people that free copy... And they still don't watch the damn film. <laughs> hey, have you watched such and such yet? Oh, I haven't got around to it yet. Well, you managed to watch all of Mad Men. Uh, so, you know. Right. You streamed all ten seasons of Friends again. Anyway, what are we jumping into? You know what? I've known Wyatt for a while. I think probably longer than Chris has. Yeah. Definitely know. longer than me. Again, I want to say thanks for coming. Because you've been doing this for a long time. You was an actor before a director. Yes. Let's, yeah. Why don't we just go and start at the beginning, man? Like, what got you into wanting to be in movies before you even starting to direct them? The acting portion is similar to you in that I was watching a behind-the-scenes piece on Star Wars, and I saw just how much fun the actors were having on the sets. And I thought, God, that, that looks like a great time. But mentioning Star Wars, I'm a Star Wars kid. Right. I was 13 years old when Star Wars came out. You know, I was already interested in movies because I was a big fan of Star Trek. My parents took me to all the movies. I, I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey in a theater. Jaws was fascinating. I was like, boat, giant shark in the water, coordinating all that. That's really fascinating. So I was already looking at film stuff and, and studying it. But then Star Wars hit. And not only Star Wars, but the one-two punch of Star Wars and then six months later, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And my head just exploded. So by the spring of 1978, I had 
gotten a Super 8 camera, and I was shooting film. Wow. Um, and then I probably started acting in films in the early 80s. So local films, Super 8 films. Sure. I was born and raised in central Illinois, so I was out in the cornfields, literally. And uh, in the early 80s, I moved into St. Louis, and I started volunteering in cable television. You know, you put in a little time on a broadcast or volunteer to operate a camera or the soundboard, and then they'd give you a portable video system that you could go out and actually make projects with. And then I went to Webster University for filmmaking, and then, you know, my first real gig was Hail Hail Rock and Roll, which shot here in St. Louis in 1986. And then I moved out to L.A. in 88, and it was jack-of-all-trades to sure. pay the bills. It mm -hmm. was... Started off with acting, realized how hard that was going to be, so I started paying the rent with special effects gigs, and then the special effects gigs started leading to above-the-line stuff, you know, the writing, producing, directing. And then I got to love the writing and directing so much that, you know, I went that route for a long time, and now I'm coming back to acting. But now I'm coming back to acting as the character actor and not the the young leading man so so you're jack of all trades more or less you paid attention at a young age because you knew you wanted to elevate well i don't know that i knew at that age that that was going to happen but what ended up happening then is if you know everybody's job it's it's hard for them to bullshit you That's true. it's hard for them to lie to you and i've had people do that well that lens can't focus like that bullshit yes it can i know it can so if you know everybody's gig you know how long things are going to take you know what things should cost. And then as a director slash producer, you can you can speak with authority. You know, you're not the director stomping his foot going, I want what I want. If a producer walks up to you and says, hey, we just found out this is going to cost this much, I can calmly say, oh, well, it's not worth that much money to me. I'll, I'll film it like this. Don't worry about that. I'll film it like this. So, yeah, if you know how long things are going to take, what it takes to get them, you become much more reasonable on set which helps a lot in the indie film world <laughs> so just so you going out to la and learning all these other things with special effects was that on purpose or out of necessity or because it made you well-rounded for sure like later in life talk about that were you hungry to learn all those things you know it's weird because it ended up being sort of a, a double-edged sword because knowing what i know now i can see that if i had gone out there at a young age and just focused on one discipline strictly, I probably would have been more successful in that thing. You know, I had some success at acting. If I had stayed just on the acting, I probably would have broken through at some point. But because I needed to pay the rent, I did all these other things, but I enjoyed them. It's not like I did special effects work because I hated it. I loved it. I loved the acting. I loved the special effects. I loved the art department. I loved doing all that stuff. And so, you know, you weren't twisting my arm to do any of it. So in the end, I ended up you know, being well-rounded, I just think maybe if I had focused on one discipline strictly, I would have gotten farther. And I think because I spread myself really thin, I got to my early 40s in Los Angeles and I still hadn't directed a feature film. And I thought, you know, at this point, I'm probably not going to break through to the studio level at age 40. They're bringing in young kids who are doing commercials and music videos and stuff like that. I'm not going to get into Warner Brothers and do a $50 million film at this stage. And that's when I, circumstances, you know, transpired that I ended up back in St. Okay. Louis. And that worked out really well. Well, you still have better hair than those 20 and 30-year-old guys. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I think of uh, you know I think of you, Wyatt Weed, as a director, along with a handful of other I guess people of sort of the old guard in St. Louis. Right. There's a we're I guess we're all around middle age, but I also think of you as a special effects guy. Right. Mm -hmm. As a model builder. 
And I am. I am very much. And I'm very old school in terms of I understand CGI. I know how it's done. But if at all possible, if I can make it physically happen in front of the camera, I will do that first. And I've learned how to sort of incorporate the digital, like, you know, as opposed to, you know, shooting models on a blue screen and then optical printing. I'll shoot models on a green screen and we'll composite in the computer. I mean, that's just common sense. But yeah, if I can build a creature, if I can build a miniature, if I can build a spaceship, if, if I can do that, if, heck, if I can blow something up, if I can do yeah. a squib hit, <laughs> if I can do something, you know, physically in front of the camera, and part of that's the old school training that I'm unwilling to give up. If I saw the results at our level as being better and easy to achieve, I would go that direction. But we all know that, you know, CGI looks brilliant in a $250 million Marvel right, film. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily look so great here in St. Louis on the indie film scale. I think that's one thing that's really impressed me about, about your work in that area is the fact that you can marry the practical and the digital so well. You're right, in indie film, normally you you either get practical effects that don't really hit or you get digital effects that don't really hit either. That's a great skill to have. And I think... Um, Part of that all goes back to the sort of knowing what your limitations are, too. Like, you know, I talk about Marvel films. I'm not trying to make Marvel films, yeah, you know? I'm not going to try and make yeah. the battle at the end of Endgame where I've got, you know, <laughs> a thousand characters <laughs> coming. You know, me get my little action figures and mount them on doll rods and click, 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 click. You know, I'm not trying to do that. I, I remember fondly the first film that Pirate Pictures produced. I did not direct it. I co-wrote it and I was very instrumental in getting the film made, but it was Ted Smith's Guardian of the Realm. And there's a scene in the script that I think we wrote, the hero pulls up to the warehouse and is confronted by an army of demons. Well, when it came time to shoot it, we had six demons. We didn't have an army of demons. We had six. <laughs> That's an army in independent film. So now we have to make it look cool. And then we got uh, a report that it was going to rain that Saturday when we were scheduled to shoot. And we're like, well, shit. And our director of photography went, let's shoot in the rain. So it'll look great. Production value. It looked like we had a rain machine. And we're like, well, how are we going to do it? And he's like, we've got those little portable tents. We'll keep the camera under a tent. We'll shoot with the motorcycle pulling up and the six demons out in the rain. It'll be freaking awesome. I, I read scripts with young people these days and they write shit like, you know, an army of. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, a 747 crashes into downtown St. Louis. <laughs> I was like, yeah, not, n no. Yeah, you can't even get stock footage of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't even afford a Cessna. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, but it's it's about kind of understanding those limitations and understanding the sort of the, the scale of things. You know, it's interesting. Look at, like, Jurassic Park 1993, which is a $50 million studio film by Steven Spielberg. If you look at that film... There's usually like a dinosaur in a scene. Half of it was puppets. Yeah, great point. And it was kind of a small scale movie. And they only used the CGI when they couldn't do it any other way. And now we're, you know, on these $250 million films that literally have 2,500 visual effects shots. It's interesting and it's beautiful to look at. I don't know if it's better. Yeah, I don't, so, I don't know if it's better or not either. And I'm not a guy who like hates CGI and hates Marvel right. films. I mean, I, I I love movies. Sure, I just want to be entertained. Right. Knowing your limitations is yeah. very important. And you're right, young <laughs> filmmakers, a few get it instinctually, right. but a lot of them don't. It's like you can write an army of demons, but you're gonna have four guys, and one of them's too fat for the demon suit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the best we got once is uh, we were shooting a scene with SWAT guys going into a building. 
and we had an actual trained SWAT guy from the St. Louis Police Department kind of as our advisor. This is on Shadowland. This is on Shadowland. He's looking at the building, and we had six actors playing SWAT guys. And he goes, you know, building this size SWAT team, we'd send in like three teams of six guys. And so we set up the camera wide and high, and we had the six SWAT guys go in three separate doors in three separate shots. And then in post-production, we split-screened in all all three teams. Yeah. So all of a sudden, right. it looked like 18 guys. So instead of, you know, an army of SWAT, we, we got at least 18. You were talking about the young filmmakers. Um, this, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but stick with me. Filmmaking to me is algebra. And if they had explained this to me in algebra when I was in high school, I would have paid better attention in algebra. <laughs> because you're always figuring for X. So when my young filmmaker friend shows up on set, and we've got 10 hours on set, and I say, how many setups do you have today? And he goes, I have 45 setups. And I go, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get 45 setups. That's ambitious. <laughs> so it's like, okay, if you want 45 setups, then you need two days on set. Well, we can't afford two days on set. Well, then we need a second unit. Oh, you can't afford a second unit? Well, then you don't get 45 right. setups. Pick your best 24. So it's all about switching these things and going, okay, and if the absolutes are this is how much time and money you have and this is how much time you have on set, then how many setups do you get? And it's all about figuring that out. And, you know, that kind of, you know, rationale and that kind of logic doesn't really appeal to a lot of creative people. But, but isn't it knowing how to do that on the fly and making the adjustments and then, because it makes the movie better, right? Because yeah. I've seen a lot of films out there that they continued on the path. They dumbed it down and the movie is worse because of it. Well, and I mean, there's seeing the moment and being inspired in the moment and, oh, I'm going to do it like this. Right. And then you show up and you go, oh, wait, wow. Okay, I didn't think it was going to look like this. I, I'm going to do it like this instead. And, you know, you cut out three or four shots, and all of a sudden you're an hour ahead of schedule. But What? What's that? <laughs> hey, that, that has happened. That, that, that has happened. happened. That, that has happened. happened. That has happened. <laughs> Well, what should I do before I direct a feature film? How should I prepare before I direct a feature film? Well, you probably should do somewhere between 10 and 20 short films. Right. For anywhere from 3 minutes to up to 20 minutes. You should do action. You should do a silent film. You should do a comedy. You should do slapstick. You should do a drama. You should do this. You should do that. Everything. It's like I've drilled so hard on in filmmaking between the cable television and then the television. Because shooting old school television, like working on multiple episodes on, of something like Hunter, Remember mm -hmm. that old cop show, Hunter, oh, with yeah. Fred Dreyer? Fred Dreyer. Yeah. I worked on more episodes of Hunter than I than I care to talk about. That was just like, boom, 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 boom. And like, oh, this is screwed up. Well, then we're doing this. Boom. And and you get that experience of like, if all else goes to hell, you know how to get out of the day. We're all digital now, but my training is all in film. And... You know, young people today, you know, they've, they have access to such great stuff, but they don't have any of the discipline and the training of exactly. the film community. Yeah. And so, you know, my, my, my training is all film, and I bring that film mentality to the digital world. And it's hard to, it's hard to impart that onto young filmmakers because they just they don't want to hear it. They want to do what they want to do. And the smart ones survive, and the smart ones learn, and they float to the top. It's but, so easy to... Yeah. to Greg has spoke about the camera on a phone these days being so great. And now everybody thinks they can make a movie. And some of them still do, and they call it independent film, and they fuck everything up for real independent filmmakers, you know? Well, that's 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 the real difference, is everybody can make a movie. Right. Anybody can make a movie. I had someone tell me once, we were having a discussion about the value of fine art versus film. She said, it takes real genius to paint a picture. Any idiot with a camera can make a movie. 
conversation ended shortly thereafter. <laughs> but but there is some truth to that. That doesn't mean you can make a good movie. Right. Well, or paint a good picture yeah. or any right. It's all subjective yeah. anyway. So And and it's funny because I do feel like strangely, I feel like if you've got access to a camera, you probably should do something. I mean, I'd love to see you're an eighty year old man out on a yes. farm somewhere and you've got a decent cell phone camera. Shoot some stuff. Record yourself. Uh, what do you got to say about life? What do you got? Show me your farm. Make a movie. Your 13-year-old girl living on the same farm? Cool. Make a movie. Make a movie about your pet pig or your dog or learning how to ride your horse. It was Francis Coppola who said that with the access to everything we have today, sooner or later, the best film ever made is going to be like done by some 13-year-old girl living out in the middle of nowhere who just has natural genius. The sad part of that is it also possible that the best film ever made has already been made, but we'll never see it because it's never going to see distribution the or the yeah. light of day. No, that's very true. Yeah. My 11-year-old son is getting into stop motion and different things, but the, the just the, what they have at their fingertips today, and I'm encouraging everything yeah. he wants to do and just trying not to get in his yeah. way and letting him stumble over himself. But right. man, some of the stuff he's producing on his own to put out on his YouTube channel is pretty good stuff for... Yeah. And now I'm like, okay... Now I need to get you this because you're ready for it, right? Or right. this, or let's explain how do you do this. So. His son's got more followers than we do. He does. He does. He's got quite a few. <laughs> you know, he compares with his friends and stuff. But you know, I, I watch some of the the reels and stuff, and some of it is just genuinely fascinating, and some of it is just, what is this crap I'm watching? And there's mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole generation of kids out there that are just you know swiping through crap, and that's they, their entertainment. I know. Yeah. That's the hard thing yeah. to break through with these. All days. right, before we go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm going to bring you back. Okay, sure. To, so you leave Hollywood, and right. I heard you say pirate pictures. Well, let me specifically say about Hollywood that I got out there when it was expensive and it was busy. After 18 years, it was unbelievably expensive and unbelievably busy. It only ever got worse. And living on the freeway because you're stuck in traffic and just the expense and working my ass off just to pay you know, the rent on the most minimal of living spaces, it just, it was ridiculous. And, you know, I wanted the freedom to be able to make stuff. And for the amount of money I could make, I was paying so much of it in Los Angeles. I thought, God, if I can come back to St. Louis. So uh, I met a man named Robert Clark. And Robert Clark uh, joined forces with a couple of his old high school friends, Ted Smith and Scott Baker. And they formed a company called Pirate Pictures. Okay. So Bob was based out of St. Louis. Bob had the money. Ted Smith was a friend of mine from St. Louis, was also a filmmaker. He was in L.A. Our first project when they formed Pirate was called Guardian of the Realm. Okay. And Guardian of the Realm was about a $250,000 indie feature that we shot completely in Los Angeles. And it was a fantastic learning experience. So, Because I've had this kind of weird hybrid, like there's been money, but it's been independent. And one of the amazing things that has happened is we've had such support from Bob on the finances, and he's he's been so supportive of us creatively. Like, if we could make the argument, if we could show him what we wanted to spend the money on, he was game. Independent filmmakers rarely get that kind of support. And, and then, of course, that was just a huge education for Ted and I in terms of making this film and, and doing what we wanted to do. So Guardian gets done. It's about 2006. Bob says, I want to make more films, but I hate Los Angeles. I don't want to do this in L.A. Uh, does anybody want to come back to St. Louis and work at Pirate Pictures in St. Louis? And I'm like, I, 
I'll come back. I couldn't get out of Los Angeles fast enough. So I moved back to St. Louis. I joined Pirate Pictures, and we started working on a couple of projects, editing some things, doing some corporate work. And the first thing that came out of Pirate Pictures and me and Bob working together was my first feature film, which was called Shadowland. And at that point, I had already done second unit on feature films. I'd done a pilot for television. I'd done short films. I'd done music videos. So, you know, kind of following my own advice. I actually described myself, going into Shadowland, I described myself as the most prepared first-time director I had ever known of because literally I'd second-uniteded other feature films, first AD'd other features, been an associate producer on features, and I just felt like when it came to directing a feature film, I knew what the hell I was going to do. And I did. The only thing I wasn't really prepared for was the exhaustion. Why did you choose Shadowland? Tell us what it's about. And, <laughs> and why do you think you chose that genre at the time? You know, the weird thing about Shadowland and some of my other film projects is Shadowland kind of came out of left field because I was trying to get the rights to a certain project and it wasn't happening. And Bob kind of wanted to do a genre film, and so did I. And we thought horror, you know, kind of staying in that same zone as, as Guardian of the Realm. Because Guardian of the Realm was like Demon Hunters. Mm -hmm. Shadowland was a vampire film. Um, and what happened is when the rights for this other project sort of collapsed, and we're sitting there like, well, what the hell are we going to do now? And Bob's got money, and we've got equipment. It's like, we're going to make a feature film. I had this inspiration based on an idea from L.A., and I turned to Bob and kind of on the fly said, what about a vampire film? And Bob's like, I like vampire films. Sounds good to me. There were things about Shadowland that just appealed to me and just some of the ideas in it, um, some of the concepts in it. Really, the characters in Shadowland were really what, what drove me. But Shadowland kind of came out of necessity. Like, okay, you're not going to get to do this horror idea that you wanted to do, but you still want to do a horror film. And literally, it was like a series of questions. Like, you like vampires? I like vampires. Do you like films about gladiators? You ever seen a grown man naked? You know, and it just it grew that from familiar, there, right, Chris? It not grew the naked from there. part with the gladiator, yeah. but uh, no, yeah. making films out of necessity, right? Yeah. We, I, always, I always think of you as more of a, of a sci-fi guy than a horror guy. Right. Yeah, and I think um, I, I would agree with that. And... Shadowland, I don't think, dwelled too much in the... Shadowland is like the born identity with a vampire. You know, it's about a vampire with amnesia who doesn't realize she's even a vampire and doesn't know what's happened to her. And the whole story is about her trying to figure out what happened to me, how did I end up here? Um, so we still kind of came at it from a very... A very different angle. But yeah, I, I've got kind of a list of films I want to hit before it's all said and done. Right. And some yeah. is science fiction, some is some is action, some is horror, some is drama. And it's yeah, if I can if I can get a half a dozen, ten of them done before I'm too old to do it, that would just be fantastic. But I'm I've definitely decided to start hitting different genres each time. Like I don't want to just keep hitting the same thing over and over. But I do want to do the science fiction film that taps into everything I know how to do. Like, that is low budget but cool sets, spaceships, visual effects, you know, I, I want it, I, and I've got an idea for that one where I, yeah, just the low budget science fiction film that everybody goes, well, that looks like that cost millions of dollars. And it's like, two dollars, two dollars. We did that for two dollars. And you shot Shadowland all in St. Louis, right? Yes. Yeah, we didn't sell it as St. Louis. We sold it as, you know, large, generic sure. Midwestern city. You know, well, That was yeah. a pretty ambitious play you made to, to make that film in St. Louis. Why did you decide to go ahead and shoot it here in St. Louis? You know, once you've spent that kind of time in a place like L.A., 
Um, what we don't have in terms of infrastructure, we have in terms of so many other things. St. Louis, it's easy to get around in. I know that sounds dumb, but trying to go from point A to point B in Los Angeles midday, like doing a company change and like a location change, mm-hmm. that's a huge undertaking. And that just takes hours to accomplish. Here, I had no concerns about saying, okay, we're gonna wrap, we're gonna, we're gonna shut down here at 11.45, we're gonna grab lunch and we'll be at our next location by 1.15. We can do it here, you know, provided, you know, there's not a crash or they don't have the highways torn up. Um, it's it's cheaper to get stuff here. You know, in L.A., everybody's prepared for you to be making films, so they ask for money. They expect a lot of money. Here, people are just excited to be involved. Still, to this day, you know, as dark and sarcastic as the world can be sometimes, people in St. Louis, you know, you making a movie? Can I be in it? Very um, true. How can I help? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's it about? Who's in it? So they're still excited. And, you know, we pay for stuff occasionally, but we don't pay much. You know, we pay a hundred bucks for a location, 200 bucks for a location. So, you know, I wasn't trying to make Titanic. If I was trying to make Titanic, I wouldn't try to make it here. Right. But because I was just trying to make, you know, kind of a small scale action film that was really about cop cars and a vampire on the run, you know, I figured plus, you know, trying to do the the time changes because we were shooting in modern day and we were shooting in 1897 Mm -hmm. and you know los angeles i don't even think los angeles has history anymore and their history is all sort of like spanish history like Mm -hmm. missions and things like that the midwest chris you know this i mean the midwest can be europe it can be cape cod it can be chicago it can Mm -hmm. be new york it can be it can be so many different things and there was so much history here. We shot a lot of stuff in St. Charles, uh, which is a little town outside of St. Louis. And that stuff dates back to the early 1800s. Yeah, the so, buildings, the cobblestone yeah. streets. I mean, it's pretty cool. We covered up a few fire hydrants. We covered up a few poles with fake vines. And boom, it was 1897. It was an affordable, easy-to-do thing in a town that, you know, despite its problems, was open to production. Uh, but that was a big deal to St. Louis at the time, making another uh, feature film, independent uh, feature film. And uh, I'm glad you brought it here and did it because you met a lot of cool people making it. You yeah. had a really yeah. good crew, and there's a lot of great actors from the area you got to use in yeah. your movie. It And I think the film looks like a million bucks. I mean, literally, it mm-hmm. looks like a million it's crisp, bucks. And, it's very crisp. And a lot of people have looked at it and said, well, how much did you spend on this? And you never want to tell them. No. But, you know, like, sooner, what do you think I spent yeah, on Yeah, what do you it, think right? I spent yeah. I spent as much on this <laughs> exactly. as you think I spent on this. You know, you mentioned um, the Hollywood thing. What was funny is one of the actors, Carlos Leon, he was from Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And he and his people were trying to get the film distributed in Venezuela. So they actually flew us down to Venezuela to do a screening of Shadowland in Venezuela. It's like, hell, if, if, if Shadowland did nothing else, it got me to Venezuela <laughs> right. and back. We went to Venezuela, and to them, they don't know from Hollywood. So we were the Hollywood people. Sure. They don't know that we're from St. Louis. <laughs> and we're from, so we were treated like royalty down there. I don't know how many television interviews we did did um put up in a hotel and you know that was my first experience with you know the women coming up and trying to give me a present and you know it's like i'm not the actor and you know man we should make a movie yeah gail Gail, the gail the producer taking the present and going oh well thank you and the 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 little spanish woman going well it was supposed to be for him and she goes i know i know it's like 
<laughs> yeah, so that was a really fun experience because they didn't know the difference. They thought we were the Hollywood people. And well, a lot of people and we just let them, did too, to be honest. We just let them think that we were the Hollywood people. Let so them, yeah. yeah. But I think it's interesting what you're talking about, Wyatt, because you knew St. Louis. You knew what you had here. Yeah. And you knew you were going to make an independent film right. with the budget you had. You had to get the experience in order to be, make that movie, right? right. Because that right. amount of money was a lot of money to make a film. Right. So you had all yeah. that. You brought it to St. Louis. But you knew what St. Louis offered you. Yes. And I think that's yeah. important for independent filmmakers to understand right. is you purposely understood the environment you were getting into, what you could make, how big you could make it in St. Louis. Because that film doesn't fly in Hollywood, right? Related to that on a kind of a, in a different way is that when Ted Smith made Guardian of the Realm, which was probably a similar budgeted film, we talked to him about, well, Ted, because Ted's from St. Louis too. We said, Ted, do you want to bring Guardian of the Realm back to St. Louis? And he said, no, I don't want to bring Guardian back to St. Louis. He said, because all my connections and my favors now are here in L.A. Mm. He said, we're going to pay more for some things out here. He said, but the deal I've got set up to get the warehouse, the deal I've got set up for some of the special effects, some of the stuff that people are going to loan me and give me, because we've made Guardian of the Realm sometimes with like borrowed prop pieces and there was this failed science fiction TV series and they had leftover alien costumes and we took the alien costumes and modified them and turned them into this. And he, he knew all these makeup and effects people who owed him favors and he called all that in. And yeah, we probably spent a few more dollars being in LA, but what we gained in terms of Ted's connections, I didn't have that kind of favor system built up. But you did here. But I did here. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah. So he so he utilized what he knew out there and he drew on that. I utilized what I knew here. And you know, my feeling, one of the questions I had to ask myself before I came back to St. Louis, and I think this is probably a, a very important point to make. I had to ask myself, okay, I'm leaving Los Angeles. I'm leaving the dream. I've wanted to be here my whole life. Now I'm talking about leaving and coming back to St. Louis. If all I do is make indie films in St. Louis for the rest of my life, will I be happy? And the answer was, yeah, I'll, I'll be happy. I mean, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to make something, you know, it'd be brilliant if one of us made a film and, you know, Marvel Studios went, you know, that Chris Greger, oh, he man, can direct. He's did good. you see that Red Knight at Skies? <laughs> yeah. We got this second tier Marvel character and I think Chris would do a bang up job on this. We should talk to that guy. It would be lovely if somebody said, you know, or even from... You know that kid who did that freaking Batman fan film? We should get him to do a cameo right. as a background character in this new Bat. How cool would that be? It would be great if that happened. I don't really expect it to, but I just, I want to make indie films. Right. I want to make films and I want to, you know, you talked about the thrill, the joy of it, yeah. the, the occasional moments of, oh my God, this is so cool. I want to do that. And I could have either stayed in Los Angeles and kept slugging it out and been one of a million guys trying to do it. You know, Brock, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you've ever gone in for an audition and you're standing there with 50 people who look pretty much exactly like you, you know, and I've been in, I was on calls in Los Angeles where, you know, there were 50 other six foot one dark haired slim guys. And I was like, you know, and, and back then, now I feel like, I'm a character. I'm, a, I'm. I've got life experience. I'm. I have an attitude. I can play a part, and you know. And 
and you know, I've got a way to go about this. When I was 24, 25, 26 years old, I was a puppy and I just mm -hmm. wanted to be in movies and I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I didn't have an attitude and I didn't have a point of view and you know, I just got cast and thrown in the background. You just showed up hoping to get a job. I showed up hoping to get a job. Mm -hmm. Now, now I'll show up and go, Give me a job. It's you don't want to give me a job? Fuck off. I'll go someplace right, else. Yeah. I'll find it. I'll make a job. Create my own job. I was just going to say the same thing. I'll create my own job. Yeah. You know, and that's, and that's, you know, that's the difference between, I think, being a young wannabe versus being an older character of some kind. So where's Pirate Pictures go after Shadowland? So with, with Shadowland, we were coming up and we were finishing production right about the same time as some other local features. And that's important to note because films at similar budgets with genre appeal, they made their distribution deals before the housing market and stock market crash of 2008. Mm -hmm. And I'm not making excuses. I mean, we had comps. We had ad slicks going out. We were... We had all the deliverables. We had all the deliverables, but we delayed a little bit for a variety of reasons, and we weren't coming out till later on. And, you know, oh, you're going to sell 50,000 copies of the DVD. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. It's going to be great. You know, we'll, we'll put a DVD in every mom and pop video store in this country. And then the crash happened, and the mom and pops went away. Blockbuster. We had a PO from Blockbuster that got canceled because Blockbuster went away, and so the thank you Netflix. The movie ultimately <laughs> still did pretty good internationally, and it did okay with DVD sales, but it wasn't what it should have been. And like films similar to ours, which got their deals put together six months earlier, did really well. And comparably, we sure. should have done as well, but the world changed. Is and it? you mentioned Netflix. Mm -hmm. Post-2008, the rise of Netflix. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you guys, like me, probably thought that, you know, the Internet has been a lot of things. But when the Internet... Old-school Hollywood was gatekeepers. Old-school Hollywood was, oh, you want to get that film distributed? You've got to have a distributor, and you've got to do right. this, and you got to do that, and you're only going to get such a percentage. Well, the Internet rose... And we thought, oh, the great democratizing force, the Internet, we're going to be able to reach everybody. But I think we all thought, OK, now we're going to have a chance to do our own thing. Well, then Netflix rose and then Amazon went, ooh, we should get into streaming. And yep. then Apple went, we should get into streaming. And all of a sudden they were gatekeepers and again. Blockbuster did not. They did not right. pivot. Yeah. Oh, Blockbuster not only didn't get involved in streaming, mm -hmm. they also refused to get in partnership with Redbox. Mm -hmm. They made two bad calls. They went, ah, oh, this streaming thing's never going to happen. Kiosks and stores with, with the dispensed DVDs, ah, oh, that's bullshit. And they went under. Did you end up going with a distributor for Shadowland, or did you end up going the self-distribution route? We ended up going with a distributor, um, and it went reasonably well. There was one distributor that we had a little trouble getting some of the money back from, but we ended up then ultimately switching to a sales rep and luckily at that point in time, like, I don't even know if international territories are doing DVD rights anymore because I, do, I don't know if there's any money in it. But back then, I mean, even small territories, there was still a chunk of DVD and some TV money. Mm -hmm. So this guy, I mean, we had, we had guys doing DVD nationally and then we had guys doing uh, international territories. And that actually went really well. Um, and I mean, it was like, 
6,000 from Germany and 3,000 from this little country and 5,000 from Greece and 1,500 from this little territory in the Philippines and 3,000 from here and 6,000 from Japan. And you do that 20, 30 times and that adds up yeah. to, you know, 100,000 plus dollars. And so, so we did okay with that. And that was a rep. And the reps were very reasonable and we knew the reps. And one of the reps we used had also worked with us on Guardian of the Realm, so we trusted him. But Pirate Pictures... What I can't stress enough to young filmmakers is, you know, yeah, I'm talking about Guardian of the Realm, I'm talking about Shadowland, I'm talking about all this shit, I'm talking about my Hollywood career, and we haven't even gotten into the acting parts and some of the stuff I'm known for. We pay the bills at Pirate Pictures by doing whatever, and a lot of that is corporate and commercial. Okay. So, like, you know, if the local... The local hardware store needs a commercial. We do it. If the local spice shop needs a commercial, we do it. If a local artist needs a music video, we do it. There was a point in time where Pirate Pictures was doing post-production audio work. We were duplicating DVDs before dupl before mm. DVDs went away. Right. We were mass producing DVDs for people. We were authoring DVDs for people. We were we were doing this isn't indie film sucks, but private business sucks. Uh, we were, <laughs> same thing. Same we thing. were yeah. doing kids dance recitals. Yeah. Done those. Yeah. And I mean, God, God bless the kids and the teachers who teach them how to dance. But, you know, you're doing a, a, a dance recital for kids who are under the age of 10. They're lucky if they can get on stage and get lined up. Yeah, but everybody's standing in line to buy those things. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, God. But that paid the bills. That'd be I brutal went, to shoot, though. But what that then did is that allowed me to stay in production. And, uh, and then eventually it started scaling up and we started working for bigger and bigger companies. Um, we did 13 half-hour episodes of a TV show called Streetscape, which aired on the local ABC affiliate for like 13 months in a row. So we were doing a half-hour show once a month for 13 months mm -hmm. in a row. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're a small production company, when you're three people and you're producing a half-hour TV show per month for 13 months. That's a lot of work. You, you yeah. develop your chops, man. You start Ooh. learning how to edit. You start learning how to produce. You start learning how to knock that stuff out. But then that also got the word out. And now we have regular clients who come back to us year after year. You know, and there's a lot of indie filmmakers who are years between projects. I shoot and direct and edit every week, week in and week out. When I'm not working on a creative project, I'm doing professional work. And I would much rather do that than like work my bank job nine to five and then try to make my indie films on the weekends. It's we like, relate. And that's, people yeah. do that. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the pivot that I made a number of years ago because I was always, because you know I didn't come to this through film school. I came to this through accident. So I was always like, no, I'm going to work my, because I, I worked as a lab technician for many years. Like, I'm going to do this to make my money. This is my job, but the film is my work. And eventually I was like, screw this. And, and I moved into, into freelance and, and, and legal video. And, and now, you know, I, I do the same thing. I do video production of a sort, whether it's corporate or commercial. I used to used to do legal. And it's, it's not what I want to do. What I want to do, like what you want to do, what most of us want to do, is make movies. Right. Every day. But that's damn hard to do. I'd rather be shooting a, uh, a, a commercial for, uh, for sushi than... Working uh, at, a, at, a, at a regular desk job. Right. 
Yeah, but yeah. You're, what I'm hearing from both you guys is you're still honing your skills. Yes. Yeah. Right? You're like yes. you were saying, I was doing this and I was yes. I was always honing your skills so you can be better when you go to shoot yeah. your future, right? Exactly. It's it's like this is not what I want to do, but I'm gonna take something out of it anyway. Right. You shot a lot of creative stuff in between. Yeah. Though short oh, films, yeah. music videos. Uh, we got in on the forty eight hour film project a couple of times. We've entered some local contests. Um, Cinema St. Louis has run some contests. The, the St. Louis Science Center ran a ran a the, make a monster movie, and we made a monster movie. There's never a time when I'm not cooking up an idea or developing an idea. And if I stopped writing tomorrow, I've still got so many projects I want to do mm. between now and the time I go belly up. That you know, <laughs> I will never have a shortage of projects. There's never a shortage of projects. Back in 2007, when we started doing Shadowland, the vampire film worked trying to set up a soundstage and build spaceship sets and do a science fiction film then didn't make sense. It's like the projects we're working on now. They're within the environment. They make sense. They're logical. And being logical just helps you kind of get better results. As, as hard as it is for filmmakers to be logical while they're being creative. <laughs> like I know with, with us, Chris made Rhineland because he wanted to make a boxing movie. <laughs> That, yeah, I've heard that story. Okay, yeah. you know, that goes shop. together. So, was it was Shadowland a possible bridge to get you to something else? Because I don't know, if, I I haven't heard this story if there is. You know, um, other than the fact that yeah, we got we were trying to pursue the rights to a story that were locked that was locked up legally, and when we got told no, I can work with no. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, just no, oh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe no, I'll work I, on your project. Maybe I, the maybe I don't is know. the kiss of death. Yeah, maybe maybe is bullshit. Yes. Yeah, maybe no? maybe is an elongated no. no. Maybe maybe yeah. is a no. I mean, that's yeah. you got to look at. I mean, no is fine. No, I can't shoot in your place. Cool, I'll look for another place. No, you can't be in the movie. Okay, it's sad. I'd like you to be in the movie, but now I can look for another actor. Yeah, no is great. And I think when that first story that we were chasing the rights on, it's a story that I had been involved in years earlier and it was tangled up with somebody else and I really wanted to make that film. And when they made it difficult for me to get the rights to do that project, all of a sudden it's like, you have all the equipment and you have $250,000, but you have no project. And you're like, as opposed to me going, you know, <laughs> I, the first thing I did was, well, what, what, what do I want to do? Well, there was that time I was walking around L.A., and there was that big hole in the ground in, in Westwood where they were doing construction, and they had that angel statue project going on at the time, and there were angel statues on the buildings that looked like they were looking down, guarding the hole in the ground. What the hell are they guarding the hole in the ground from? What's coming out of the hole? And I imagined this beautiful woman crawling out of the hole. Who's the woman? What happened? How did she get in the ground? What is she? And Shadowland literally came out of my memories of the hole in the ground in Westwood. It sounds crazy that with all the ideas I've had for movies, that ultimately the reason Shadowland happened is because somebody said no. And in that moment, I remembered that hole in the ground in Westwood, and I just went with it. So you bring up some points, though, that we talk about a lot on here, which is control. How do you, because it seems like you understand where you can take control 
right? And and drive with that. But that's a learned behavior also, right? Oh, yeah. And it's it's definitely, well, first of all, again, I can't thank Bob Clark enough for, we've kind of moved beyond Bob Clark's financing, which is good for Bob, because I don't think he can afford to spend a whole lot more money on movies. Bob gave us such unprecedented freedom. I can't even imagine what it would be like now to work at the studio level. I'd be happy to work at the studio mm -hmm. level. But I can't imagine that I would have the freedom that I had with this guy just literally writing a blank check for a quarter of a million dollars and saying, go make the movie. And the fact that he trusted Ted Smith and he trusted me and said, you know, yeah, I like what you guys are saying. I like what you're showing me. Go and do it. The kind of film school that that was, was, I mean, graduate school, because I've already been to film school. You know, it, it, it informs you after a while. And I have had some young people point out to me, rightfully so, that sometimes I get a little too set in my sort of, you know, cautionary old man indie filmmaker ways. And sometimes they come along and they shake up the status quo. And I, and I think about it and I go, yeah, you, you're probably right. We probably could do something different here. We could experiment with something or we could break out of the mold that we're in. No, that, that experience, I mean, indie film sucks, but I'm lucky in that the team I've worked with, the creative people I've been with on set and been in the trenches with, they've been fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The suck has come from outside influences. Well, you People, can't control 2008 yeah. when the housing market crashes, exactly. right? Exactly. That, that, yeah. that sucks. Well, Bob the and suck. Dale are your core group. They're both great people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're both working their asses off on the set. I mean, yeah. even Bob, who wrote the blank check, yeah. he's, he's building a, something, a structure on the set during the day of filming, you know, because he's, yeah. he's an ass kicker. Bob, build this shotgun case that the Vampire Hunter shotgun goes in. Bob, we need a... We need a phone booth, and phone booths the, don't exist anymore. Right. Build us a phone booth. And yeah. yeah and that's what he was building, I remember. Yeah. yeah. He's and actually lighting rigs and camera rigs. And, you know, Bob and I one time figured out that, well, what's involved in a car mount? You know, the car mount. Car mounts are such a big deal. There's a whole big device, and there's all this shit you strap onto a car so you can mount a camera. And I understand what they do. I was like, well, what would happen if we just took the hi-hat and a piece of foam and a couple of ratchet straps and just strapped it to the hood of the car? Would it work? Well, yeah, it'll work because we went out and we did it. And then we drove the Jeep around <laughs> the city for a while. It's like, well, damn, that looks good. We're not spending a penny. That goes back to the idea of like having experience and seeing how Hollywood does it and then going, okay, wow. I know Hollywood does it like this. That's the principle. Mm -hmm. Guardian of the Realm, one of the greatest things that ever happened was... Um, a guy on the crew built something that he called the shot faker. And the shot faker was this big jib arm that he had built. And it was built out of like pipes and he screwed stuff together. And, and the jib arm, it's like a parallelogram device where like it's 20 feet long and you lower this end and it brings the camera up into the air. And then if you turn this end, the camera goes up and down and it does stuff. So he built this thing called the shot faker and he brought it in and we knew that to do like big sweeping shots of a crowd, we needed some kind of a crane. Well, we tried the shot faker and yeah, it was a piece of crap, but damn, the shots looked great. So again, we knew how Hollywood did it. Now, how are we going to do it? Right. Like, you know, I know this needs to be a dolly shot. Well, I'm not renting a dolly. I'm not, you know, going out and bringing in a Fisher 11 dolly, but I do have you know, a little four foot fold out table and I have six feet of PVC pipe and I have a little skate wheel dolly. I know that sounds really cheesy and I know that there, I have, I have friends who've tried to build stuff and shoot with it and it looks like hell because they don't 
had the experience. Right. Whatever works, baby. Yeah, but whatever works, absolutely. I would be remiss if I did not talk about the dysfunction of Hollywood. Like, I talk about the experience of Hollywood, but I stop and think about some of the shit that happened in Hollywood that just... Hollywood functions on such an odd set of rules. And there were good people out there. My theory is there's the low-budget guys who don't have anything to lose, and there's the big-budget guys who have all the money in the world. They're cool. They don't have anything to worry about. We don't have anything to worry about because we have nothing to lose. It's everybody in between who's slugging it out. And God forbid you end up in between fighting for the scraps, the scraps that nobody wants that we use, and then the high-end people. So there was stuff in Hollywood like, I remember once we were on set and they were delivering the dailies and they had to like pay for the dailies when the dailies showed up because they were on like a cash basis because things had gotten so tight, the dailies company wasn't going to deliver the dailies without getting a check. Mm. Well, the production team was bitching and moaning and complaining because they didn't have money to pay for it. And they're talking about, we're not going to be able to watch dailies. And, blah, blah, blah. We, and screaming at the producer. And we're not going to be able to see the dailies today because you're not giving us the money. And, and, you know, and I'm on the effects crew and I've got petty cash. And I go, well, guys, how much is it? i got petty cash. And the, the director turns around and goes, shh, 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 shh. <laughs> And later on, he pulls me aside and he goes, don't ever do that again. What are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to get you your dailies. And he's like, yeah, well, there's been money flow problems at production and production's being stupid about the money and we're trying to get them to give us the money and you offering to help pay for something doesn't help us because we're trying to put it to production so that they'll start paying us better. And I'm like, okay, so I'm trying to be a good guy in Hollywood. Rarely worked. Like, I'm trying to help you out. No, no, we don't need your help. It's not the way it works. We're trying to fuck with the system in a way that they're fucking with us. And the shit flowed downhill. And it's like, I've screwed up and I've gotten in trouble. And now you're in trouble because I'm in trouble. And, you know, we've screwed this up. But now it's your turn to fix it. And it just, there was so much dysfunction. You know, and I've even seen, I never, I never took advantage of it, I swear. But I'd, I'd walk into a production house to pick up dailies because I was a PA and nobody looked at me twice. I'd go into a production house as a producer on a film project to sit in a color correction suite and, and supervise color correction getting done. And all of a sudden the cute girl running the front counter was all over me and wanted to get to know me. I was like, I was the same guy who was there a year ago picking up dailies and you didn't look at me once. And now I'm here as a producer mm -hmm. sitting in a suite doing color correction. And all of a sudden I'm right. super special. And it's like, get the fuck off. Of she me. must have seen you in the alien outfit. I must have yes. seen me in the alien outfit. Yeah. So, well, yeah. And it's specifically the predator. Outfit. The predator. outfit. Yeah, predator right. two. For those of you who don't know, I was a predator in Predator 2, the end sequence of Predator 2, uh, where all the predators decloak and surround Danny Glover. I was, I was specifically the boar predator. Oh. And, and I was not the boar predator at the time. At the time, they weren't called anything. It was just, hey, you, stand over here. It was the fans years later who dubbed them the Lost Tribe and named each one of them. And the production company and the makeup effects people sort of adopted those names. So Thank God for the fans. Yeah, well, <laughs> and in 1990, when we did Predator 2, oh, we're all going to be superstars. This is going to get us work. And, blah, blah, blah. and Predator 2 kind of came and went. It wasn't as big a hit as the first one. It's like, okay, well, that didn't work. And we moved on. And then years later, the internet and the resurfacing of the Predator films... And um, I was at a science fiction convention promoting Shadowland. 
And a friend of mine walked up to me and he goes, weren't you a Predator in Predator 2? And I'm like, yeah. He says, weren't you on Star Trek The Next Generation? I'm like, yeah. He goes, there's a guy over there who played a Harry Krishna zombie <laughs> in Dawn of the Dead 30 years ago. And he's getting $30 a pop for signing autographs. He's like, why aren't you fucking signing autographs right now? And, and the light yeah. went on in my head and I went, why am I not signing autographs right now? So as a test, one of the next shows that we went to, I took Predator photos. Because another fun story, back when we were shooting Predator 2, oh, no cameras on set, no cameras on set. Well, I snuck my 35 millimeter DSLR onto set. And then when things were kind of quiet, I turned to my handler and I said, can, can we get some photos of me? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we can get some photos of you. Nice. So there's a photo of me standing there with my head off in my full suit. And then we stepped outside the stage, put the head on, and I've got these shots of me as the predator. Well, in 1990, what the hell were you gonna do with 35 millimeter pictures? You weren't gonna release them on the internet. There was no internet. Right. The best I could have done was maybe have sent them to Fangoria Magazine or something. Right. Still... So many years later, I was able to digitally scan the negatives and make these nice photos. And now Stan Winston has actually pulled my photos and put them on their website no shit. as <laughs> the boar predator. And it's like, yeah, that's my photo. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for asking me my permission, but I yeah. never asked you if I could go sign autographs. So right. let's call it even. Star Trek The Next Generation was, I think, the best experience I've ever had on a set out in Hollywood because it was hanging out with those actors and those cool people and, you know, having plenty of food and having plenty of snacks and having comfort and getting a costume fitting and getting a hair and makeup test and, and all of that stuff. But I have to tell you, we had a 17-hour day on Star Trek The Next Generation, and I don't know why we had a 17-hour day. Mm. I don't know what they were doing. And it's like the... The executive team would disappear and we'd all just sit there in chairs and they'd be gone for hours and then they'd come back and we'd shoot stuff that I don't know what the hell they were doing yeah. for 17 hours, but we didn't do 17 hours worth of work that day. So I don't know. Maybe yeah, middle management though, right? doing something. Yeah. I don't know they what the hell justify, happened. <laughs> justify the budget. You know, but it, luckily I was in double time at that point. So it's like, I'm still getting paid, right. but... I was like, yeah, yeah, don't be the I, first guy to say I want to leave, right? I am getting tired, though. You know, I am getting tired. But, but you, you know. were young. Oh, yeah. My God. That was back in the days of work 24 hours, have a zinger and a can of Coke, go to bed, sleep, get up, have another zinger and a can of Coke, and go back and do it for 24 hours yeah. more. And, and I feel like I'm paying for that now. Yeah. If you and did that now, you'd be dead. Yeah. And it's now it's about working smarter. And oh, yeah. Gail and I are starting to figure out that at the age we're at now, it's like... You know, I know we said eight hours today, but, I, you know, we're at six and I'm tired and it's just me and you. And, you know, let's call it a day. Let's it's our shoot. It's our thing. Let's pick this up tomorrow. Let's finish this tomorrow. So bringing things back up to closer to the present, what was what was your follow up from Shadowland? You know, the follow up from Shadowland and given all the financial craziness of Shadowland, we kind of took a different tact and. We joined forces with another local production company called Archlight. And Archlight is Nicholas Hearn and Jason Contini, mm -hmm. who's an actor who you guys probably know. Jason had a script. He had an idea called Four Color Eulogy. Jason and I talked, and Jason wanted to be the lead. I wanted to direct it. So we decided to join forces. And we went the... Um, the fundraiser route. We went the you know the Indiegogo hmm. slash We're familiar with that fundraiser uh, that route. Out for you. Well, there were two plans. It worked out well. It was just okay. we ended up going with Plan B. Plan A was the seventy thousand dollar version, 
with a couple of days uh, by a name actor. And then there was the $15,000 non-union, no name actor version where we all didn't get paid. We just were in it for shares, Mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. And we paid everybody else, but the main creative team that contributed stuff. And it was a great experience. I I co-wrote with Jason and then I was the director of photography and the director. And I'm proud of how the film looks. I'm, I'm proud of the story. I'm proud of how it turned out. If we raised $15,000 and we had made $15,001, it would have been a success. Mm-hmm. Four Color Eulogy is just like, it landed with a resounding thud. Like okay. it was primarily online distribution, primarily streaming, um, really self-distributed. And it just, it did not almost no business. Couldn't find was, a place for it at the time because it's a new new era of filmmaking distribution yeah and it just it like it fell in between that like shadowland today still makes money streaming like we get a check a month for shadowland it's still making money it's a vampire film with a sexy Mm -hmm. you know born identity vampire four color eulogy which i'm proud of which is a family comedy drama just whoosh like Mm -hmm. that kind of film just and i think like we thought the geeks were gonna buy it because it was about comic book artists right. and what they were trying to do to get their comic book done um and the geeks didn't care and then it's kind of got the family drama thing going game of the year thing but there's so yeah. many family dramas that already have you know jason bateman and jennifer garner and you know i just the other night watched a you know kind of a family comedy drama with julia roberts and george clooney in it yeah. you know ticket to paradise so why do they want to watch, you know, Jace? So it wasn't a genre film. It was a straight-up comedy drama, and it just, nothing happened. Of course, we weren't out money, and the experience was fantastic, but it just did nothing for us. And our plan had been, if this is successful, we'll take that money, and we'll funnel it into another one, and we'll funnel it into another sure. one, we'll funnel it into another one. When the first one didn't really do anything, we just kind of went, okay, well, that's the end of that experiment. Yeah. That's, do you think, that's not going further. Do you think that that speaks to the, the power of horror films? It speaks to the power, really, of any genre, particularly horror films. Um, yeah, it's, well, and it speaks to what happens when you don't have a name actor. Yeah. Because we had talked about a particular actress that Jason and I, Jason and I sat down one day and was like, who do you see in this part? I see this actress. And I went, oh my God, I see her too. And we talked to her and we got a price out of her. And if we'd raised the 70 grand, Mm -hmm. we could have done it. But when we didn't raise the 70 grand, it was like, well, we'll spend our entire 15 grand just kind of doing that deal with her. Then we'd have literally nothing left. (laughs) I debate whether or not that was a smart thing to do because... You know, names is a big thing. I think with genre films, horror films, yeah, there's a power and there's a built-in audience. And I think you could say that about certain kinds of science fiction films, mm-hmm. yeah. action films, action. Yep. You know, ninja films, martial arts films. But the cheapest of all those is probably still yeah. horror. Yeah. yeah, probably horror. And, and I have to say the current project that I'm working on, one of the things I set out to do is I thought I've, I've never scared anybody. And I want to scare somebody. I want to scare somebody at least once in my career. I don't tend to hug the genre thing really closely. It's like Shadowland, yeah, it's a vampire film, and you can sell it like that. Maybe it's a little more talky and a little more emotional and a little more intellectual. And I think maybe if it had had some more hardcore vampire blood and guts action, it probably would have been more successful. The current project, it's horror but it's not typical blood and guts horror. Suspense. So hopefully it will get people through the door. And once they get through the door, they'll 
they'll stick with it. But you could say that about a lot of Hollywood films. There's a lot of Hollywood films that gets th thrown at you as a meaningful political drama, and then you watch it, and you're like, oh, this is just fiction. This is this is just dramatic bullshit, but it's entertaining. So, but I feel like you've kind of had a I don't know. You've had an off and on relationship with genre too, where your very stuff much. kind of <laughs> falls in between. Probably, Rhineland was very distinctly a war film. It was, and then Sound of Nothing was very distinctly a, a post apocalyptic zombie film. But even that, you know, it's like drama and character development yeah. and suspense smart, and smart scripts. You know, yeah, smart scripts when people just want you know. Argh, argh. Yeah, that's yeah. a criticism we've had about Sound of Nothing is oh, it's too. Too talky, too too character driven, not enough action driven. Right. I can't argue with that either. Right. Well, we found even during our research and trying to find that formula, man, the subgenres, and just finding that niche or that lane in that subgenre. Because even in horror, right, it's slasher, thrasher. It's yeah. do you just do the spooky scares? Right. right. It's just so there's so many other sub. You know. So how do you appeal to the most of those? Red Night of Skies is an action horror film, but there is drama in it, too. Well, there is. Right. Depends know, on who you're talking good, to. You have to have that good story like you're talking right. about with Shadowlands. Well, I, I know I'm kind of like Wyatt in the fact that, I mean, yeah, I like action, I like horror, but I also want a story where you care about characters. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't do a movie where six kids go into the woods and they get chopped up by a maniac. I, I, can't, right. I can't do that. The project that I'm currently working on, it's like, it's a ghost story. But I couldn't just let it be a ghost story. It had to be about shit. And then I started working my own life into it. And then I started drawing on experiences. And, you know, it had to be more that I couldn't just make it a ghost story. Yes, I, I think I will jump scare you a couple of times. I think people will come out of it going, wow, that was really cool. Can you name it? The project? Yeah. Yes. It's uh, it's called Dark at the Top of the Stairs. Right. And there's a famous play called Dark at the Top of the Stairs. This is not that play. There's a thing happening, and I think there's more of them out there than we realize, and that's called COVID features. And I think there's been several filmmakers and actors and people around the world who have made COVID features. Eric Stanzi did one. Uh, oh, okay. And, it, and it, it, that's exactly what it is, and it's still in post. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. That's, that's interesting that you kind of labeled that. Well, and I think there was some, like, fairly, I want to say, like, James McAvoy, like, he had a nice house, and he had a girlfriend or a wife, and he had a friend, and once they got past, you know, kind of a quarantine situation, he made one. I, I hope I'm getting the name right, but yeah, this has been, like, on a fairly major scale. So I think sometime in the future we need to do the, the COVID feature film festival. Um, and wanna, that's... I want to forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a direct response to that, and it wasn't so much... Yes, nothing was happening and the town shut down, but I was also annoyed because there were people I knew who were working on films that I was involved in, and they had it figured out. They had the drill down. They knew how to test people. They, everybody was going to mask up. We knew how to do it and be safe, and I think they were already having a struggle with their projects, and they were already tired, and, they, and when COVID came up, they just kind of went, ah, this is too hard. And they just abandoned the projects, period. So the frustration that Gail and I were going through was not so much COVID as all the filmmakers we knew that we were in, in bed with them on film projects and they literally all went away. And I got really... So the progression was that in the fall of 2020, in the midst of COVID, my wife and I moved from a crowded, busy, noisy part of St. Louis to this little town north of St. Louis called Alton, Illinois. And we moved into this 130-year-old house with, like, no noise, great neighbors, deer in the front yard, eagles flying overhead, and it was just 
paradise. It was just unbelievably nice. It was a great change of pace. But we very quickly realized, you know, there's some creepy shit in this house. Now, the house is not haunted, <laughs> but it made weird noises, and there was banging on pipes, and there were doors that would open on their own. And so, yes, the house is not haunted, but it inspired all kinds of haunted house stories. And so after months more of frustration with the COVID shit, I turned to my wife and I went, why don't you and I just make a movie? She could have gone, oh, what? No, but she goes, us make a movie? Sure, what it's going to be about. And I'm like, we'll make a haunted house film. We'll do it in this house. She's like, really? How, how, how do we shoot it? How do we do it? And I'm like, I'll be the actor. You'll, you'll shoot it. And she's like, okay, will you help me shoot it? I'm like, yeah, we'll direct it together. She's like, all right, let's do it. And that's literally how it started. And you're still married. And her exact quote was, this is either going to result in a finished film or a divorce. And we're still married. And nice. honestly, it was a lot of fun. And it's literally the two of us making the film. And I still, you know. Did she get a cameo or anything? It's just. No, oh. she has no cameo in it. She, has, she stands in for me once or twice because not only did I cast myself as the main character, I play my own twin brother and I play my own father. Okay, make it work. That, that's, that is indie filmmaking. That's, Making it that's work. <laughs> one location, one fucking actor, <laughs> right. one camera. And the beauty is we always have the location because it's our house. Yeah. And we're the crew, so we're always available. There's never a problem with the actor because I'm always there. And so... All right, you fuckers are fired. I'm, <laughs> I'm on board for this. Well, and as crazy and bullshit as that all sounds, once again, because we know how films are made and we know how to put these things together, we're coming at it like, you know, again, that algebra thing. How should it be? Okay, we know how it should be. What do we have access to? What can you and I do? And so we're kind of reinventing the wheel and we're coming up with creative ways to make this happen. And I think there'll be two reactions. I think the audience will see it, and if the audience enjoys it, they'll be like, oh, it's a fun film. It's kind of a small-scale film. I think there'll be filmmakers who'll look at it and go, how the hell did you guys do that? Yeah. Because there's things in it where, I mean, we were just inventing shit on the fly. and No restrictions. Just do your own thing. Yeah, just do your own thing. Yeah, and it's he's... amazing how freeing. Yeah. And, and, you know... We talk about indie filmmaking as fun sometimes. It's yeah. like it sucks, but there are those moments. Mm -hmm. This every day was like, you got a barn, I got a camera, let's make a movie. Except yeah. now we know what we're doing. Right. It's one thing when you're doing it when you're 13 years old with your buddies and you've got, you know, you've got a battleship model in a pool in the backyard and you've got firecrackers. It's another thing when you've been doing it your whole career and now you're like, okay, total freedom, but now I know how to accomplish this. And so it was really, um, it's really been a fun experience. And we shot off and on for about a year and a half. We're in post now. Okay. Um, I hope to get it finished up this summer. Where it'll go? I don't know. Because I don't know the budget at this point. I don't know, we've maybe spent 500 bucks at this point. I want to buy a couple of stock shots. Maybe I'm going to need to buy some music. I'll be shocked if the budget hits $2,000 when it's all done. That's pretty awesome. That is so awesome. theoretically, yeah. theoretically, we could probably just post it on Amazon and just let the streams come. But I'd like to... I'd like to get it out there and get it streaming. Get it on Tubi. Get it on. Get that penny an hour, man. Get, <laughs> get it on. Get it on Shutter. Yeah. Get it in front of people. Right. And uh, but it's it's interesting because it's been like two hundred fifty thousand for Guardian of the Realm, two hundred fifty thousand for Shadowland, fifteen thousand for Four Color Eulogy, two hundred fifty 
2000 for Dark at the Top of the Stairs. But Dark at the Top of the Stairs has been so much fun. We're already talking about well, what are we doing next. I've uh, I've been following, uh, you know, because everyone's on social media and Facebook, yeah. and I've been following, you know, your your tale of of this movie since you've been doing it. Mm -hmm. And I gotta say, man, I'm not bullshitting you. That's I'm I'm really interested and excited to see the film. And and I think a movie like that cannot be done well without the level of experience that you have. I agree. And yeah, and not to not to toot my own horn, but yeah, I would agree as well. And I only say that to indie filmmakers out there because if just like making a first time feature with no experience and too much money trying to do something like this i'm already looking at the film myself and going well this scene's too long i gotta cut this down my monologue here went on way too long i gotta cut away something so i can lop out the middle part because i don't want this to be boring so even knowing what i know my ultimate goal is this has to be enjoyable this has to be good it can't be slow it's got to be a good movie and here's the thing about st louis and for all of St. Louis's problems and the crazy drivers and <laughs> the lack of tax credits and all the other shit going on in St. Louis, in St. Louis, you can ask for shit that is crazy, and sometimes you get it. Mm -hmm. And so Absolutely. we went to Higher Education Channel, which is in Maryland Heights, and they have this huge, beautiful building with this giant lobby. If I was going to shoot the interior of Wayne Industries in St. Louis, I would use this building for Wayne Industries. It's that cool. And we went to the HEC people and we said, we need a doctor's office and we need an elevator and we need like the lobby of a professional building. Can we shoot here? And luckily we'd done some favors and some exchanges of favors with HEC. And so HEC was like, yeah, we can work this out. We can do this. Okay, when can we shoot? I cannot stress enough how much fun it was to just be completely, the only limits were us. The right. only limits were us, and that was just so creatively freeing. And I hate to see my budgets keep going down incrementally, <laughs> but the fun has been going up incrementally. All so right. we'll see. I mean, if this thing does nothing... And uh, you're not out anything. Right. Yeah, then we're not out anything, and Gail and I are still married. If it does something, that's going to be really encouraging to me to, you know, sure. we'll... Well, what do I do now? And what kind of a set can I build in my basement? And can I do that science fiction film? And yeah. can I shoot green screen spaceships in my living room? And I know that sounds insane. <laughs> I, I got to give credit. One of my inspirations was a filmmaker named David F. Sandberg. And David F. Sandberg directed, I think, uh, I think he directed one of the Annabelle films. And he directed Shazam and Shazam Fury of the Gods. And the guy is from somewhere in Europe. He's from like Norway or Sweden or something like that. And he did a series of YouTube videos and his comment was good enough. And he got known for doing these short horror films and he'd do them in his apartment with his wife, who's an oh, actress. Shit. And they were simple ideas. Like one of them, it's like, you know, every time she turns off the light, there's a silhouette at the end of the hall. And when she oh, turns the light back on, that. Okay. yeah, that's David F. Sandberg. And they're simple, like three to five minute short mm -hmm. films with one horror idea done extremely well. And he does a bunch of behind the scenes stuff. And he's like, well, you know, I could have done this and I could have done that. And I could have used the computer to do this. But, you know, I did it like this and that looks really good. So good enough. Moving on. And then I did this and I did that. And I just taped a light to the wall and that gave her a backlight. And I could have done this and I could have done that. and It would have looked better. But, you know, that was good. Good enough. Moving on. And he, that was a huge inspiration, mm. seeing him doing those videos 
gave me a lot of confidence that Gail and I could do something very similar. Um, but you still need a level of knowledge and yes. experience to do these things. Yes. And, and that's, yeah. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, the, the best way to get that knowledge and experience is yeah. just to start doing it, start making movies, fuck up a bunch of shit. Yeah. Do it cheaply. Yeah. Do it cheaply. But yeah. that's... Like, you made your first feature, I think, the right way. Sure. I think I made mine the wrong way. I did three shorts, said, okay, let's make a feature. I know what I'm doing. Not at all. Not not even close. Film is such a communal experience. Everybody sees films. Everybody likes films. So everybody kind of feels like they know something about films. But if you don't know how to make films, yeah, you can say whether or not you liked a film. And you can even say what you think is wrong with the film or what they should have done. But if you're not a filmmaker, you don't really know. I see a rash of older people. And when I say older, 40-something, 50-something or more, and film is their second career. We're like, oh my gosh, I always wanted to be a filmmaker, but I was an industrial designer. I always wanted to be a filmmaker, but I was a police officer. And then they decide they're coming to film later in life. That's great, except that older, more mature people who are already professionals have a really hard time learning what they don't know. Yeah. So they, well, you know, I'm, I've been a lawyer my whole life and I raised a family of five children. I think I can direct a feature film. <laughs> no, you can't. These are, I don't stop making feature films and say, well, I think I'm going to be a doctor now. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. And so I think, unfortunately, older people who are kind of set in their lives really need to have an open mind. And theoretically, they should be able to learn all the tricks and move up through the ranks much, much quicker than when you're 20 years old. But I really think they still need to kind of do a crash study course and figure out, okay, what do I know about filmmaking and what do I not know about filmmaking? And people who are peripherally involved in the film industry, okay, you're an actor and you've been an actor your whole career. You've been on set your whole life. You probably do have a real sense of how films are made. Do you know about producing? Do you know how to break down a script? Do you know how to schedule a film? Do you know what that kind of stuff is really going to cost or what happened behind the scene to get all that shit to the set that day? And if you don't know that, um, you know, or if you're, spe I know a lot of special effects artists who move into directing. Yeah, you know how to do special effects. Do you know about story? Do you know about drama? Do you know, you know? Um, I think... Um, you've spoken to your culture shock the first time because oh. you were always just an actor I was always, the camera. always yeah. an actor and on Red Knight you stepped behind the camera yeah. on the producer side and I was blown away and I wasn't trying to be a Mr. Know-it-all or right. say I, I was I was there to learn and soak it up right. but I was overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that happens especially on an independent film where you wear multiple hats yeah. and you better be ready to wear multiple hats yeah. because you don't know what hat <laughs> you don't have the blank hat right it on there because you don't know what you're going to be doing because my feeling on, a, on an independent film is if you know what all the departments are supposed to be on a real feature, on a big budget Hollywood feature, you can sort of replicate them on a, on a lesser basis on an indie film. How many days was it? Uh, Ooh. Approximately. I'm going to say it was approximately 30, probably. Now, these were not killer 10, 12 hour days. I would say we averaged eight hour days. But we had a lot of partial days. Like, we'd mm -hmm. do six hours this day, four hours this day, a two-hour pickup the next day. Production spread out over many, many days. But I'd say all total, it was probably closer to about 30 days. Which has got to be kind Full. of a good feeling. We're only going to shoot for four hours today. Yeah, right. Well, when it's just the two of you, <laughs> you figure out how old you are very quickly. Because typically, you've got a PA. And if we're shooting in the attic, and all the equipment is in the basement, 
and we have a two-story house with an attic, so that's three flights down, three flights back up, and we need a sandbag. Poor Gail, because I know you was upstairs yeah. just rattling off. Wait. Oh, man. <laughs> Waiting and for your shot, wondering where the... <laughs> but it very much was, I mean, we, you, we very much collaborated. Like, you know, I had a vision, I wrote a script, but then I'll tell her what we're doing and what I want, and then she'll shoot it, and she'll tell me what she thinks, and then she'll throw ideas at me. And cool. I'm like, this is the scene. This is what I'm thinking. And she'll go, okay, what about this? So it's very much when it, it's going to be a film. I'm not a big fan of the a film by credit, the, the authorship credit, because it's a collaborative medium. This mm -hmm. one will actually be a film by Wyoming and Gail Gallagher, nice. because it literally is a film by you know, the two of us. So it's very much a, a collaboration um, between she and I. And it's been fun because she's not been in this position before of being the full camera operator and one of the co-directors. So it's been fun watching her learn stuff. And there's a great outtake of her sliding the mini dolly way too far back on the tracks to the end of the table. And we had the dolly and the camera weighted down with a couple of sandbags. And she just slid it a little too far back, a little too aggressively, uh -huh. and rocked that whole thing back while the camera was rolling. And there's this great shot of the whole thing going <laughs> over and her, you know, yelling and screaming. And, yeah. I know. And I saw this. She put it on uh, Facebook. Oh, man. And it, it, it worked out fine, and it was okay. But, yeah, no, it's, it's, so it's been really fun to watch her do this and, and see her get into it and see her come up with ideas and crazy stuff. And, yeah. But yeah. essentially, the, the most important takeaway, and I will say this to any filmmaker, is, man, take your time. Right. We're not in a hurry. And at the end of the day... We don't have to sell this movie. It's you know, no one's going to die, no one's going to go broke, uh, no one's going to lose their life if we don't sell this movie. So we are not going to enter into a deal just to enter into a deal. Right. right. And we right. are okay if we have to self-distribute. Right. We're okay with that. It's it's right. a it's a brave new world we're living in, and we are we are not going to sign right. We're not going to sign <laughs> anything that is to our disadvantage. Better to have the film sit on a hard drive forever than to sign a shitty deal. Yeah. Know your parameters, know your yeah. lanes. And if you said that with Four Color Eulogy, right? right. You oh, spent yeah. X. If yeah. it doesn't do anything, that's where it sits, and let's go do some other stuff, right? And our initial, in our initial distribution deal with um, Guardian of the Realm, it was a shit deal. It was a shit deal with bad percentages, but after sitting on the film for a while, and I wasn't a partner in Pirate Pictures yet. I mean, I worked on Guardian of the Realm, but it was Scott and Ted and Bob. And eventually they just got to a point where it's like, well, what else are we going to get? But in 2006, they also didn't have a lot of the other options yeah. that we have right. now. God, Guardian of the Realm. Guardian of the Realm is such a great genre exploitation film, more so than any of the films I've made, that they could have done, they probably would have done just fine these days because Guardian of the Realm, it's got everything. It's got boobs and blood and action <laughs> and sexy girls and, you know, not to sound crass about it, but it does. It's got all the... And it's a good film. It's like an R-rated, hardcore version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And, you know... But, yeah, at the time, they just... They got taken to the cleaners on that. And, you know, eventually we got some of the rights back and we were able to do other stuff with it. And then the company that originally made the bad deal, they got sold a couple of times and then they went under. We got advice from a lawyer and the lawyer just... We're like, should we go after this? And he's like, well, the companies are gone. He said, at this point, I would say, you just go for it. And I can't imagine that they'll come after you if they don't exist. But at this point... I'd, I'd go, this is a lawyer telling us, go ahead and start your own distribution with this thing now, 
because if they come after you, what what are they going to do? How are they going to come out? What are they going to get? Right. And, you know, when a lawyer tells you, nah, screw it, do it. Yeah. So that's exactly what we did. <laughs> so the second phase of Guardian, I think, went very well. And we're talking with a new company about getting all that stuff under, you know, an aggregator to put it all back out mm-hmm. onto streaming again. Right. You know, this this standard deaf film that we made in twenty in 2006 might get redistributed all over again. And re- where can we find your stuff, Wyatt, real quick? You know, um, Pirate Pictures has a website. I think it's piratepictures.net, but um, I'm wyattweed.com. Okay. Um, and I have a website with some of my work on it. My wife and I, Gail Gallagher and Wyatt Weed, we're both on Facebook. I'm just Wyatt Weed on Facebook, and you can friend me on Facebook or follow me on Facebook. And I have a YouTube channel. I'm the Wyatt Weed YouTube channel, and you can see a lot of my short films there. You can see The Dark Knight Returns, an epic fan film on my YouTube channel. He's Batman um, and Bruce Wayne. So, and Batman, I, I am one of the few people who can blow smoke up his own ass. I am cool. Batman and Bruce Wayne. And <laughs> I am three actors in one film right now, so you know yeah that ego is in check i gotta tell you so something you said earlier really hit home with me my favorite film out of everything that we have done to this point is 35 days that's 35 days post-production odyssey Mm -hmm. i think in the the main reason we didn't release it was because we didn't have a name in it Mm -hmm. and if four color eulogy would have had a name in it it's a different ball game yeah because even it, it whether the film had a marketing angle or not as a film with a name, uh, I think the name would have gotten people to put eyeballs on it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then they would have seen, oh, this is a pretty good movie. Right. Without that, they go, ah, I don't want to watch that. Oh, what, D. Wallace is in that? Well, yeah. yeah, I'll watch it. Oh, Julia Roberts is in that? Well, yeah, I'll give it a watch. Right. Yeah. That's that's the game. And and I guess from hindsight, hindsight's twenty twenty, spending a 15000 or whatever it would have taken to put that name in there. Yeah would have been worth it yeah but you know at the time and now dark at the top of the stairs at 2k has me in it and i'm not a name i mean there's a couple of predator fans out there who'll probably get all excited about it but, no, that's, but for but for two but for two thousand right. dollars it doesn't matter for two thousand dollars it could have been a puppet that looked like yeah, me right. and it probably would have been fine which that's a whole nother film we can make at some point in time you know i did want to at one point make a zombie film with finger puppets <laughs> all right there is one final thing I'd like to end on, and that is, you know, we talk about experience and we talk about encouraging young filmmakers to get plenty of experience yes. before they bite off a big chunk, before they, you know, make plenty of short films, get on sets, um, make sure you're prepared, don't waste a lot of money your first time out. Like you said, your early work is not going to be good. That's okay. My early work wasn't good. Your early work wasn't good. You're going to suck at first. There's, yep. there's suckage to be had. But I have to say at this point, and, you know, knock on wood, hopefully I haven't jinxed myself, at this point with all the Hollywood experience and all the stuff I've done and all the disasters I've seen, you can't scare me anymore. I've been involved in so many things that have gone wrong or gone belly up, and I've had so many things, you know, screw up. But it's like something blows up in front of me, something goes to hell, and my first reaction is, okay, well, how do we recover from this? Mm-hmm. You know, there's been so many disasters and so many, you know, setbacks that usually my first reaction is to take two steps back and go, okay, well, how do I fix this? And, you know, I can't, I cannot encourage people enough to get the experience. And there's something to be said for craftsmanship. The idea that if you put, you know, 10,000 hours into something, 
you are a craftsman level at that thing. You know, and no, I don't expect everybody to put in $10,000 on indie films before they make their own feature film, but having the hours in really does help. You know, compare it to like driving. You know, you start out as a driver and you're nervous and you don't know what to do on the road. And by the time you've been driving your whole life, it's like, oh, this is ice. I know how to handle that. Yeah. Oh, this is snow. I know how to do this. Oh, these conditions. Yeah, I'm just going to stop driving today. I'll start driving tomorrow. I cannot stress the experience level enough. You know, you want to get to the point where nothing scares you anymore. Um, except, you know, except Apache helicopters. Those are terrifying. <laughs> okay. so, but other than that. Well, uh, the other very terrifying thing that we always talk about. And you know what it is. Don't what, you? what is that, Mr. Gregor? Nudity? That would be the uh, the highs, the lows, and the in betweens of true independent filmmaking on the Any Film Sucks podcast and in life. Brought to you by 88mm Productions. And it's on all the places that you find this stuff. Appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you. This has a been lot, fun. Yeah. A lot of been great fun. information. Appreciate it. This has it. been fun. Yeah, awesome. All right. All right. We're out of here. All, all right. right. Peace. Keep sucking it, everybody. Indie film sucks. Indie film sucks. It's the indie film sucks.